CFA welcome to our guest speaker, our national Next Gen Missions Director, Eric Hoffman. All right. How's everyone doing? So a couple things. Number one, kudos to your pastor for an amazing escape room experience. Uh, if you have not signed up for it yet, I was pleasantly surprised by what they did. Uh, I travel the nation. I am an escape room junkie, my wife calls me. Uh, typically on any given week that I'm doing a tour across the district, I'll hit at least three escape rooms. Uh, it is my way to shut my mind off and do something different, and that's my focus time. So uh, make sure you take part in the escape room. It's for a great cause as well, Project Rescue, which I'm going to talk to you a little more about at the end of this service. But uh, I am honored to be traveling with my friend Tyler Tufty. I've uh, been, you know, Tyler's been doing a great job here in the South Dakota district. We, we continue to see the bar of missional generosity through BGMC and Speedlight uh, raised each and every year. Uh, I'll also say the giving that you just took part in uh, for BGMC, that was just the appetizer, okay? Because I'm going to ask you to give at the end of this. Some of you are like, I knew it! Okay. <laughs> I believe once you hear what God is doing through Project Rescue, you're going to want to give, okay? What I love is through Next Gen Missions over the past five and a half years, we continue to see God move through this generation of students and children in ways that we've never seen before. When I started in 2018, at the end of 2018, collectively, BGMC and Sweet Like Given was at about $17 million across our nation, which is phenomenal when you think of BGMC. The first offering was in 1949, and it was $9.35. And in 1944, when Speed of Light was launched, it was launched with one man's dream of finding 100,000 people to give a dollar, okay? And now we're talking in 2018, collectively 17 mil. But last year, at the end of 2022, we were $250,000 shy of $30 million for the two ministries, okay? And amen. And here's what's neat, okay? God has called this generation of students his unconventional generation with an unconventional anointing and outpouring that there's no precedent to an anointing of this capacity. And I continue to see it through the generosity of teenagers and children. Okay, we have Generation Z and Gen Alpha coming. And I truly believe if we disciple well, there will be no need out there that God asks us to provide for that we won't be able to say yes to. Amen. Um, I live next gen. Let me, I brought some family pics. I wish they could travel with me, but uh, I can honestly say my kids are all over the nation now. Uh, so this is my wife. Uh, just, we were in Africa three weeks ago. You see the token elephant picture in the background there. Uh, we just celebrate 25 years of marriage on August 8th. Uh, I call her my rib. For those of you that don't understand that, open up the Bible, read Genesis, the first couple chapters, you'll get it, I promise. Um, so that's my rib. And then next picture, you're going to see some of my riblets, okay? Um, so uh, in the back up there, that's my son, whom I'm well pleased. Uh, Matt and his wife, Taylor, right down here in the front with a blanket wrapped around. They are full-time youth and kids pastors in Missoula, Montana. They are expecting uh, our first grandbaby in about four weeks. Hallelujah. Can't wait. Uh, we are excited they're having a baby boy. That's really important for you to hear this morning because you're going to understand why in just a few moments. We have 
two biological daughters. Abby's in the center, and Emma is down here. Abby's 21, Emma is 17. And then the next picture, my wife and I took guardianship of a young lady back in 2010. Her name's Taylor. Taylor will be 28 this upcoming, uh, this month. We are in October now. Uh, she'll be 28, and she has two daughters, Nella and Nora. They all live with us. Um, and then not pictured, I won't put a picture up because she'll get mad at me, but my mother-in-law lives with me as well. So this year, I'm going to be traveling 242 nights away from home. People are like, how do you travel as much as you do? It's really not that bad at all, okay? Uh, we have two female dogs as well, so I'm surrounded by women. Back in May, we went to Montana. We did the gender reveal, and I told my son, I said, buddy, listen, if, if you crack that confetti cannon and pink comes out of it, you're just going to have to give dad a second. I'm going to be good with that, I promise you. And then all of a sudden, they cracked the cannon. Blue confetti came out. I started jumping. He started jumping. He's like, Dad, I gave you a boy. I'm like, thank you, buddy. So I can't wait. I can't wait. I already bought my first pair of baby Carhartts. Okay, like I'm all in camo and Carhartts. Like I am redneck through and through. My claim to fame, I can skin a deer in three minutes. Okay, like I'm in. I'm all baby boy, team boy. Let's go. I'm ready. So uh, super excited. But you can see... Um, this next generation is important to me, okay? I think that when it comes to our churches, and guys, I'm in a different church every single week. Uh, next Sunday, I'm going to be in Oregon. The Sunday after that, I am in Pennsylvania. The Sunday after that, I am in Alaska. Sunday after that, I'm in Kansas. Sunday after that, I'm, I mean, I'm nonstop. And what I continue to see scares me, okay? Specifically, when I ask this question, would you really die for him. Would you die for Jesus? Okay. Like it's, and it's not a trick question. Like it's one of those things that like, as we do this thing called Christianity and being a Christ follower, would you really give your life for him? Would it, would you give your all for him? And my fear is like, when I look at Acts chapter two and how the church was unveiled from that moment in the upper room that we, the church, we look nothing like what it initially was designed to be. Okay, when you look throughout history, you read of great men like Polycarp, who at the age of 86 years of age was burned at the stake. Okay, he was considered to be an atheist who fought against the spread of false gods and proclaimed the one true God, Jesus. And through his lack of denial of Jesus, okay, they didn't want to kill him, but simply because he would not deny Jesus, they burned him at the stake. And then you read of a young lady named Perpetua who they threw in prison while she was pregnant. And while she was in prison, they used her dad against her, brought him into the prison cell to beg his daughter to deny Jesus. That's all they were looking for. We simply just deny Jesus as your savior. And she told her dad, I will not do it. She gave birth to the baby while she was in prison, handed the baby over to the dad. They keep bringing dad into the prison cell Okay, you could be relinquished of this pain that you're enduring right now if you would just deny Jesus. They wouldn't do it because she was taught. She was discipled well. Her teacher, Satoris, they take him into the arena, okay, to where they release wild animals. And historically, you can read of the encounter to where they say that wild animals, as people stood by and watched, gored him to death. Then they proceed to bring her into the arena after they murdered her dad in front of her, bring her into the arena. And historical account says this, before she was killed, 
She called out to her brothers and sisters to stand in the faith, love each other, and let suffering, to not let suffering be a stumbling block. Upon those words, they take her head, they put it on a stump, and the Roman gladiator takes the axe, and as he proceeds to cut her head off, he missed. And it says he only partially cut her head off. I don't know what that means. But I can imagine it to be agonizing. And the account says that she reached up her hand through pain and agony. She grabbed his arm and she helped him, assisted him bring the final blow to herself. You see, today, like, I'm wondering, like, how we got away from this thing called really propelling the gospel to the ends of the earth. Then you read of the account of Emperor Constantine. Okay, in 300 AD, he comes into power, and all of a sudden, he gives his life to Jesus, and historical accounts says that he established the church. Do you know that the church was being propelled in a, at a rapid rate the first 300 years after the death of Jesus, and then once Constantine established the church, it became stifled. It, it, it no longer spread the way that it was. Is it possible that Constantine established this thing that we're doing right now called church in such a way to where we could propel and share the gospel and yet maintain our safety? So my question to you again is, would you really die for him? Okay, and I get the same look every single Sunday. The look of, okay, yes, I would. Okay, absolutely, maybe I would. Or, yeah, I'm not quite sure about this whole thing. Okay. I'm looking at this thing, and I really believe if God called this unconventional generation, I love that your pastor has hired all young people on his staff. Okay, it's what I told Tyler, like, kudos to you, Ben. Not everyone would do that. I'm trying to do that in my office because I really believe in this next generation that God's prophetic word was true, that they are his unconventional generation with an unconventional anointing and outpouring of his spirit, that there's no precedent to an anointing of this capacity. And if we don't lead them well right now, what does it mean for 10 years from now? I want young people to understand that God has called them to take a risk. Okay, to put it all on the line, to live this life called Christianity out loud so everybody sees it. I think of individuals like Brother Andrew. You could read of his life in the book God's Smuggler at the age of 27. He believed God told him that he was supposed to smuggle Bibles into nine countries that made up the Iron Curtain where it was outlawed. He wrote in his book that he would get in his light blue VW vehicle and he would drive up to the border and guards would walk over to his VW Beetle and they would look through it for the Bibles that he had in there covered with a blanket. Okay, you can watch an interview between him and Pat Robertson on YouTube, and he would say this. He would tell Pat, he'd, he'd say, there'd be moments where they would be walking around my car with, with ARs, looking inside my vehicle to see if there were any Bibles. And I would simply just pray this prayer. God in the Bible, you made blind eyes see. But I'm praying right now that you would make seeing eyes blind. And as the guards would search his vehicle, they would never see the Bibles. And he continued to launch the word of God into these countries where it was outlawed. He said this. He said, I would pray, okay, this prayer all the time. Make seeing eyes blind. What he didn't know was that God was taking him to an entirely different level. 
Brother Andrew said, whenever, wherever, and however you want me to be, I'll go and I'll begin this very moment. As I take my first step forward, will you consider this a step toward complete obedience to you? Then this part, I'll call it my step of yes. Okay. It launched and he had this dream, this desire to see a million Bibles taken into the underground church in communist China. With the help of a gentleman named Thomas Nelson, who began to print these Bibles successfully, they printed a million Chinese Bibles, loaded 232 tons of these Bibles on a ship in California. And when they got to China, Brother Andrews was there to deliver a million Chinese Bibles to the underground church. Someone asked him, Brother Andrews, was it dangerous? He said this, of course it's dangerous. But it's a lot more dangerous to not do what God is asking you to do. Has God asked you and I to do something recently or in the past that we've yet to complete? Have we neglected to make an unwavering yes to him? This leads me to my text this morning. In Acts chapter 8, we read of the first account of what I believe to be the first missionary, the first evangelism, the evangelist Philip. Acts chapter 8 verse 26 we read these words, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, get ready and go south to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This road is not used nowadays, so Philip got ready and went. I think of this scripture, and back in February, I had the amazing opportunity to go to Israel for the first time ever. Okay, I was in Jerusalem, but then we met with a business that was asking Speed the Light and BGMC to come alongside of them and partner with their drip irrigation units and their disaster response unit. I can't get into those details. But I made the drive from Jerusalem just east of Gaza. Church, I got to tell you, we read this scripture, okay, the words that says, this road is not used nowadays. Okay, you know why it wasn't used back then? Because there's nothing there. Okay, you know, the same thing from back then, there's nothing there, is still true today. Church, there's nothing there, okay? It's desert. I'm driving down that road, there's no trees, it's mountainous, it's hot. The only water there to drink is the Dead Sea, and nobody's drinking that water anytime soon, okay? So I'm reading this scripture, and all of a sudden, it just comes to life to me. And I start thinking about this Okay, what was Philip doing in this moment to where the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, get ready and go south? Well, historically, when you look at this, Philip is doing ministry in Samaria. The gospel has exploded in Samaria. People are getting saved, okay, probably baptized with the Holy Spirit. I imagine big church services going on, and Philip is the main speaker, and people are running to the altar. Like, it's going on in Samaria. And God says, well, Philip, I need you to go south. Okay, it doesn't make sense on paper. Okay, I think of that moment to where my wife and I, we were full-time in ministry in the northeast corner of Pennsylvania. We were loving life. We were having an amazing year of ministry. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, Eric, you're going back to Illinois. I'm like, I don't want to go back to Illinois. Okay, I don't want to be in the Midwest. I hate the Midwest. No offense to those of you that live up here, but... Listen, this Midwest is completely different than that Midwest, okay? Like, it's hot here today, but it's not always hot there. It's always hot as Hades, okay? And then we get the ice. I love the snow. I miss Pennsylvania. I'm like, I love that season. No, God, I don't want to go back. God was calling me to go back, but it didn't make sense. 
Mark Patterson puts it this way. He said, the key to spiritual growth is the willingness to go out of your way for God. He says that you will find God in uncomfortable places at inconvenient times. And if you go out of your way for God, God will go out of his way for you. Sometimes it's difficult. Hear me today, church. For Philip to go forward, he had to go down. Down is not just geographical, but it's also individual. What do I mean by that? In the most difficult times to where God asks you and I to do something that we don't want to do, the most important thing we can do is go down. Okay, to humble ourselves. Because it's in those, mom- those, those moments to where there's a lot of tension in that moment. And if, if you've been serving God faithfully for a lot of years, you know what I'm talking about. When God asks you to do something really big and you don't want to do it, there's tension. Well, I think of tension, okay, and I'm a hunter. Like, I love to hunt, okay, I love to bow hunt, okay, don't do it often enough. I love it. I think of that tension that's on the line when you're drawing it back, okay, you're pulling that line back. There's tension on the line. The tension takes you backwards. Why does it take you backwards? Okay, the tension is there to launch you to something greater, to help you hit the target, to hit the mark. I think of that, and I think of Philippians chapter 2. It says this in verse 5, the attitude you should have is the one that Christ Jesus had. He always had the nature of God, but he did not think that by force he should try to remain equal with God. Instead of this, of his own free will, he gave up all he had and took the nature of a servant. He became like a human being and appeared in human likeness. He was humble and walked the path of obedience all the way to death, his death on the cross. For this reason, God raised him to the highest place above and gave him the name that is greater than any other name. This doesn't make sense on paper. It makes no sense whatsoever. But God was allowing tension to happen with Jesus because he knew what was in store for his example that he set for us here on this earth. He allowed tension for my wife and I in that moment. I want you to go back to Illinois. I didn't want to go back to Illinois. Okay? What is it for you? It could be a job for less money, but it would be healthier for you and your family. Maybe he's asking you to sell something and give that money away. Maybe he's asking you to call and ask an individual for forgiveness. Maybe you've seen missionaries be sent or you heard Marco say missionaries being sent from our church. Maybe God's been speaking to you and you've been fighting it. What if you understood that your yes, your absolute yes, and all in yes could impact the entire world if you were obedient? Would you do it? Philip could have said, okay, God, I'll go, but you just got to give me a couple days. Okay. The angel of the Lord came to him and said, get up and go south. And we read that he simply got up and went. The only assurance we have today when we say yes is that faith never knows where it's being led, but it knows the one who's leading it. For me, my yes has always been a gut instinct. It's easy for me to say yes. God has proved himself in my life time and time again. But for others, it's not always easy for us to say yes because we want to know the answer. I love what R.T. Kendall says regarding obedience. He says this, God speaks, I obey, God explains, maybe. God speaks, I obey, God explains, maybe. We always want God to explain his plan to us first, but that isn't always how God operates. Our yes is typically based on whether it fits into our life, if it's convenient for us at the moment, or if it works into our schedule. But Philip, Philip could have waited, but he got up and went. And I can imagine, 
Okay, because I love putting myself in the position of the men and women that we read about in God's word. Okay, if I were Philip, I would not have been happy. Like, come on, God, like things are going really good for me here in Samaria, and now you're asking me to go south. So he goes south, and he's sitting out there, and there's absolutely nothing. There's no trees to get shade. It's hot. Okay, it's like Illinois in the heat of summer. Okay, I just want a good drink of water, but I can't even get fresh water because that's the Dead Sea over there. Like, come on, let's all be honest. We'd be complaining nonstop. Like, really, God, you have me here? But as we read on this in that scripture, we read this. An Ethiopian eunuch, who was an important official in charge of the treasury of the queen of Ethiopia, was on his way home. He had been to Jerusalem to worship God and was going back home in his carriage. As he rode along, he was reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Do you know what this is? This is the greatest timing pattern of the New Testament. Okay, For those of you that like football, I'm a diehard Pittsburgh Steelers fan. You either love me or hate me. Last week, the week before I was in Ohio, I had my Pittsburgh stuff on, and I was speaking in Cleveland the Monday that they were playing Cleveland that night. I had so much fun stirring the pot. Like, I'm just that guy. Okay? Like, I love timing patterns, though. When you watch a timing pattern unfold in the NFL, it always involves two people, the quarterback and the wide receiver. The quarterback says hut, and the wide receiver knows that there's a very specific spot that he needs to get to at a specific moment because once he gets there, the ball is already going to be in the air, and he has to be at that specific spot in order to catch a pass for the reception to move forward. Okay, But if the receiver is knocked off of that timing pattern at any given moment, if he stumbles and falls or if the defender hits him, what happens to the pass from the quarterback? It's incomplete or intercepted. No bueno, it's not good. Okay, Nobody wants a timing pattern to be knocked off the timing. And here you have a timing pattern that's happening. You have God saying to Philip, I need you to go south because he had a timing pattern waiting. So now you have Philip sitting there, heat of the day. You have the Ethiopian eunuch. And in verse 29, we read this. The Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over to that carriage and stay close to it. Okay, I'm sitting there in the heat of the day. I'm hot, I'm cranky, I'm tired. The Holy Spirit says, hey, Eric, get up and walk alongside that carriage. That's the last thing I want to do at that moment. Okay, you brought me all the way down here. I was really good in Samaria, but you brought me here, south, south, okay, next to Gaza, where the road, there's nothing, and you want me to now walk alongside of a carriage. But Philip, always given his yes, just got up and started walking alongside the carriage, and, and we read this. Philip ran over and heard him reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah. He asked him, do you understand what you're reading? The official replied, how can I understand unless someone explains it to me? And he invited Philip to climb up and sit in the carriage with him. The passage of scripture which he was reading was this. Now remember, what I love about God's word is he always puts the specifics in it he wants us to know. He could have just said it was an Ethiopian who was part of the queen's treasury. But he didn't. He said, this is an Ethiopian eunuch. You guys know what a eunuch is, right? Do I need to go in detail, right? Everyone knows what a eunuch is, okay? He willingly allowed himself to be castrated, okay, at the service of the king and queen, okay, to serve them. He allowed that to happen to himself. And all of a sudden, Philip climbs up in the carriage, and he says, how can I understand this unless someone tells me? And then he starts reading these words, okay? I believe he was reading it and rereading it and reading it again because this impacted him in a deep way. 
He was like a sheep that was taken to be slaughtered. Like a lamb that makes no sound when its wool is cut off. He did not say a word. He was humiliated and justice was denied him. No one will be able to tell about his descendants because his life on earth has come to an end. You think that had meaning to this man? Okay, this man at the mercy of the king allowed himself to be cut off, to be humiliated at the service of the king, to know that he could never have children, ever have children. And he's reading this and he asked the, the official, asked Philip, tell me of whom this prophet is saying this, of himself or someone else, because he had this he had this thing that was in common with this individual. He wanted to know more about him. Then Philip began to speak, starting from this passage of Scripture. He told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled down the road, they came to a place where there was some water, and the official said, here is some water. What's to keep me from being baptized? The official ordered the carriage to stop, and both Philip and the official went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Can you imagine Philip's excitement? In this moment to where he responded with a yes to the person of the Holy Spirit and he went south and he was able to be there in this moment. Okay, to bring impact upon this Ethiopian eunuch's life. Okay, I can't even imagine the excitement upon him. God told Philip to go south and Philip had no idea that this timing pattern would lead to the salvation and water baptism of an Ethiopian eunuch. He said yes without knowing what was in front of him. So my question to you this morning, what's holding you back from your yes? Okay, coming from Africa three weeks ago, I was on a safari. One of my favorite African animals on the safari is the impala. Okay, love the impala. Fun fact about the African Impala. Number one, they stand about three feet high. They can jump at full speed. They can jump 30 feet forward, one single jump, and 10 feet high. You see, here in the U.S., we don't have safaris. We have things called zoos. Okay? In zoos, like I have one, Springfield, Missouri. Okay? They have, they have uh, African Impalas, and they are situated in their exhibit. Okay? Where they are down below the ground, you're looking over them. Okay, and in my mind, every time I go over to that enclosure, I'm looking at these impala, and I'm just thinking to myself one word. Jump! You can do it! Jump! You're free! Like, I've seen you in the wild, 30 feet forward, 10 feet high, jump! But we're crafty. Because when we put impala in enclosures here in the U.S. in our zoos, we either put them down below the ground, or we build about a six-foot fence around them. You know Why? Because Impala won't jump where they can't see. So what's God been asking us to jump to? Okay, but we want him to tell us where we're jumping to. And I think of that. Like, Philip jumped without even knowing the potential of that one conversation. Back at the turn of the century, a volunteer in a church named Ed Kimball led a Sunday school class for 17 young men. He said that 16 of them were great kids, but that there was one in particular that was a troublemaker. He would distract the other boys, and when he wasn't distracting them, he would be sleeping. He was completely uninterested in anything that Ed would teach on, but Ed made a decision to do something crazy. He knew where this young man worked in downtown Chicago at a shoe store, and he decided to go there during his lunch hour, thinking that if he could just separate him from the other boys, maybe he could potentially reach him. Ed worked up the courage to go down to the shoe store. He paced back and forth, waiting for the noontime hour, 
Dwight's lunch break, as he approached him, he asked him for an opportunity to talk to him. It was during this conversation on the streets of Chicago where Dwight gave his life to Jesus because of Ed's patience. As I call him Dwight, the world knows him as D.L. Moody, one of the greatest American evangelists who is responsible for leading over a million people to Christ. But the story doesn't end here because it's just a conversation. D.L. Moody has been preaching in Europe and America, and in one of those conversations, he leads to the Lord a man named Wilbur Chapman, who is one of the great Bible teachers who also wrote a ton of discipleship material. Chapman then leads to the Lord a Major League Baseball player who played for the Chicago White Sox named Billy Sunday, who was so touched by God, he left the majors and decided to preach all over the country. But he couldn't preach in churches because he wasn't ordained, so he decided to set up tents all over the country. He decided to set up a tent in Asheville, North Carolina, and in one of those services, a tent in a tent, a really blonde uh, young man showed up at the altar and gave his life to Jesus. We know him as Billy Graham. It doesn't stop there. There's a man named Andrew Carlson, and through alcoholism, his family was being ripped apart. He decided he needed to change it, so he entered into AA back in the 90s. And in AA, someone handed him a Billy Graham crusade tape to where he gave his life to Jesus. He went home, told his family that they were going to start attending church. So they pulled out this thing called a phone book and went to the yellow pages. Okay, young people, it's like Google for you today. Okay? And when they started looking up churches, the first church that was on, in the A's was the Assemblies of God in Yorktown, New York, to where he and his daughter... Elizabeth started attending. She became an honor star, a missionary. A missionary started de like devouring the word of God, decided to go to master's commission in State College, Pennsylvania, to where she met her husband, Eric Hoffman. They now have three kids. Okay, Their oldest is in full-time ministry in Missoula, Montana. You see, we never know the impact of our yes. Okay, So my question to you this morning is, what are you jumping toward? Okay, when we hear about missions, when we talk about missions, when we think about missions, okay, it's easy for us just to look at the money that we have to give up. But what if your yes could impact an entire generation of women?